If you look, even today, I believe there's still a couple of them along Sierra Highway. And on that street, you'll see a large stack of sirens up on a pole. And these sirens had various different tones and pulsing and wailing that as children in elementary school, uh, we did have to memorize what each one of those things meant. Whether it was a nuclear attack or an earthquake or, or some other disaster. So as kids, I guess we were a little bit numb, but we really never knew if it was a drill or a real emergency. That was the Cold War. That's when there was a great fear of world dominance or attack, nuclear war, all sorts of terrible things. I don't know that the people were highly impressionable or just that the potential for that disaster to occur was so high, uh, but it led people to do a lot of different things. It led people to build bunkers in their backyard. It led to the belief of the Russians having bear bombers. It led to children practicing a duck and cover, get under a, a, a table, uh, go to a shelter. Uh, all the families had a meeting point for when the nuclear war was going to happen. This is Eric Knutson, director of advanced projects at the Skunk Works. Eric grew up in a historical time, in a historical place, around remarkable people. The Antelope Valley in California, where the Skunk Works is located, is nicknamed the Aerospace Valley for all of the groundbreaking aircraft and technologies developed here throughout history. It's no wonder Eric pursued a degree in engineering, works at the Skunk Works, and is a pilot himself. Yeah, I didn't, probably didn't realize it at the time that I was around all these heroes. For example, after I became a pilot, I would just have with my dad's friends go up and do my biannual review. It didn't really shock me at that point that the guy that was giving my biannual review was also one of the astronauts from the Apollo series. Uh, these were just people that I grew up with. One of the remarkable people Eric grew up around was his own father, Martin Knutson. There was a lot of secrecy in the operation, so as children, we really didn't know when uh, our father was going to get back, and he would overfly the house at a low altitude to let us know that he was home. And I would sit there in the backyard with a little signal mirror to shine the sun back at him to let him know I saw him. As you get older, you start seeing things and recognizing them as being a little odd. Uh, why is it that we've got a set of identifications for all the family with a different name. Uh, because we all had an alternative name, especially when uh, we were with him on an overseas deployment. So there were, there were strange things that would occur and you'd pick up on it, but we really didn't talk about it uh, at all. It wasn't really until, until I became a Lockheed employee and one of my first assignments was on the U2 program. People would bring by these documents and say, did you know what your father did? I think what made him a hero was what he did for us at home, just like any other dad or mom. Uh, that's what made him a hero to me. I didn't realize that you know, in his spare time he liked to get shot at over Russia. In this episode, we're going back. 
We're going back before the F-117, before the SR-71. We're going back to the Cold War. Because in 1953, an aircraft was proposed that began to experiment with radar avoidance. This is an aircraft that does so many things well, it's still flying today. There's a couple of rock bands named SR-71 and U-2. U-2 has lasted a lot longer than SR-71 rock band, <laughs> just like the airplanes have. Once again, here's Steve Justice, former director of Skunk Works Special Programs. After World War II, the Soviet Union became this very closed country. Like the United States, they had taken scientists and engineers from Germany that worked military products like rockets and, and jet airplanes, and, and were going to use that to advance their own state of the art. What World War II also introduced was the atomic bomb. So now you had this terrifying weapon with technology bleed to Russia. The, the Russians actually got the atomic bomb secrets, and we couldn't figure out what was going on. The desperation to see inside the Soviet Union comes in multiple forms, but probably the, the, the biggest driver was fear of preemptive attack. Were they trying to position for an attack on the United States? The other th part of the threat was, quite honestly, a lack of understanding of how the Soviets were thinking. Again, a very closed society, and unknowns create a vacuum, and that vacuum is filled by something, and a lot of times it's paranoia. And so there was a desperate need to understand exactly what the state of the art of these technologies were inside the Soviet Union. Reconnaissance airplanes, or airplanes that carries cameras or radios to detect what an enemy might be doing, actually date back as long as there are airplanes. The very first military airplanes were reconnaissance airplanes in World War I. They were designed to take photos of the trenches and battlefield areas and gun emplacements so that the side you were fighting for could better target the enemy and understand what their troop movements were. In World War II, reconnaissance aircraft took many forms. There was a, a reconnaissance version of the Lockheed P-38 Lightning. And as you come into now the Cold War after World War II, fundamentally we just converted existing aircraft into reconnaissance aircraft. You have to understand the Soviet position now. Here's an aircraft that had dropped atomic bombs flying into their airspace, yeah, it was carrying reconnaissance equipment, that, but that reconnaissance equipment could just be a bomb. So now you can imagine the paranoia is on the Soviet side. It started off as taking conventional airplanes and flying them in, and that didn't work so well. There was a lot of Americans that spent their lives, the remainder of their lives, in, in camps inside the Soviet Union because they were shot down. The CIA and the Air Force both had ideas, maybe if you could fly high enough, that you could fly so high that the Russian radars would not be able to pick you up. The Air Force started a project, I believe it was called X-16, twin engines system to fly at very high altitudes and carry reconnaissance payloads. The CIA needed something quickly. And since Kelly had performed this, this miracle with the XP-80 and the P-80 designs, 
the thought was, can he pull this off for us? And so through relationships, uh, Kelly was introduced to people to begin discussions about what the art of the possible might be. Kelly Johnson worked with them to define this aircraft that would fly above 70,000 feet, which they thought was high enough that the, the Soviet radars could not detect the airplane. Much like a flashlight can't see for infinite distances, a radar can't see for infinite distances. And so its effectiveness reduces with distance, and that appeared to be the distance that would make the, the Soviet radars blind to the presence of the aircraft. As I understand it, it's almost ironic. We, as Skunk Works, had lost out of the competition to create a high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft. Ultimately, the company that had been selected was Bell. The challenge that they faced didn't allow Bell and others to really effectively create a solution, and they were having difficulties. So in the best of Skunk Works ways, Kelly Johnson kept going back in and telling the head of CIA and others, I've got a better solution. What I've heard growing up, Kelly was so annoying that they, I, th I think they just had to listen to him. He, he wasn't going to let them not listen. And eventually they said, okay, show us what you got. really incredible thing about the U-2 to me was they were essentially handmade. The first airplanes were handmade, so everyone was different. They weren't exactly the same, and so they flew differently. One of the, the engineers down in Burbank told me about they would take each airplane up and fly it and, and try to get what its basic stall characteristics were and its takeoff and landing characteristics, and everyone was different. And Henry Combs, was a guy that was tasked to go out and figure out how to tweak the airplane to make it to where they all kind of flew the same. He would go out and put these little pieces of metal on the airplane. If it were on the wings, they were called stall strips. And he would listen to what the pilots told him about how the airplane was stalling and when it would drop a wing or yaw a little bit. And he would go around and tweak trim tabs and put these stall strips on the airplane based on what he thought was going on. And his batting average was just huge in getting these really close the first time. So this is where it was art. The U-2 was a really interesting technical and technology problem. Its primary performance attribute was altitude. And to get to high altitude, you have to make lift. And the more weight you have, the more you have to lift. The lighter you are, for the same amount of lift, the higher you can fly. So in the U-2, in the high altitudes, one pound of weight was one foot of altitude. And so they did lots of tricks to take weight out. If you pick up a, a bucket of paint, that's heavy. So the early airplanes weren't even painted. The cameras, you wanted the camera reels to be as thin as possible. You needed the body of the camera to be as light as possible. The glass lenses are very heavy. So how do you take weight out of that? So that the effort to reduce the weight of the aircraft extended not only to the airframe, but to the systems inside the airframe. 
You know, an interesting thing when you look at a U-2 sitting on the ground, you'll see two landing gear under the body and then two little pogo, as they call them, landing gear under the wings. That was another weight savings idea. A normal aircraft would have three landing gears sticking down. That's three landing gears of weight. The U-2 really has one main landing gear and then a little tail wheel that's very light. And then it has these outriggers to allow it to be stable when taxiing that drop away upon takeoff. And that weight then is left on the ground. And so you have this, this super lightweight landing gear. I mean, it's just, it was just this fiendish commitment to eliminate weight to give the airplane the most altitude it possibly could. altitude when the U-2 was flying, and this is incredible to me, it was up in something called a coffin corner. It was going as fast as it could and as slow as it could at exactly the same time. As you go up in altitude, you're limited by the Mach speed of the aircraft. But one of the things that happens as you go up in altitude is the air gets thinner and thinner, so the stall speed becomes higher and higher. So the stall speed will eventually come up and match the maximum speed of the airplane. And so the U-2 would sometimes fly only five knots off of its max speed and off of its stall speed. And so you're just, you're barely flying in the airplane. You're going as slow as you can go and about as fast as you can go. And when you would go into a turn, the outer wing was having to fly further than the inner wing. It was turning so it was flying faster than the inner wing and it would cause buffeting. The inboard wing was starting to stall, and the outboard wing was in mock buffet from going too fast. So imagine these sensations. How as a pilot do you tell exactly what is happening? Too fast, too slow? Is that a stall, or is it going too fast? And when you're at altitude, you can't pull the throttle back because the engine's running as slow as it can but also as fast as it can. And so what they'll do is they'll put the landing gear down to create drag so that the airplane starts to slow down and, and, and loses lift and descends. Well, that landing gear was designed for weight, but also it had to be a really robust gear because now you're deploying it at really high speed. Typically landing gear is retracted by the time you get, you know, up close to 200 miles per hour now you're up at four or 500 miles per hour and putting the gear down, which puts huge loads on the landing gear doors. So, you know, you, you work so hard to get this airplane up into this corner and then it doesn't want to come down. <laughs> All the parameters between propulsion and aerodynamics are so boxed in that you have to, to physically change the configuration of the aircraft to have it come out of that flight regime. You know, some of the great stories that I love about the U-2, it, it had something called a, a gust relief system on it. The airplane was built so light that turbulent air could actually cause the wings to rip off. So flaps that normally come down to increase lift, Kelly and his team designed them to where they would go up and reduce lift on the airplane and reduce the airplane's sensitivity to gusts and turbulence. Kelly referred to it as an angel for a very good reason, that it gets this incredible view of the earth where the sky is almost black during the day. You can see stars. You're almost into the heavens, but looking down at the ground, that's pretty cool.
the U2 program, which started in the mid-50s, ultimately called upon six initial Air Force pilots to join the CIA, become sheep-dipped, that is, remove all their knowledge of their existence, change their names, and train them for a special operation, and then be passed on to a very special program, which was the U-2 program that Kelly Johnson created. One of those six pilots was my father. Uh, It was what they called Detachment A. As we mentioned at the top of this episode, Eric Knutson's father was Martin Knutson, one of the first pilots to fly the U-2 and a close friend of Francis Gary Powers. They all went out and got to see the U-2 for the first time. And as a matter of fact, I remember my father commenting that when he got out of the van on an undisclosed location, he took one look at the U-2 and saw that it had a yoke for a control column inside the cockpit. Now, these were all tough command lead pilots of fighter aircraft. And in in their mind, any aircraft that uh, had a pilot that could hold his salt did not have a yoke. They had a stick. And when they saw a a yoke in the U-2, they decided, no, we're not interested in this. It doesn't look like a tough airplane. They got over that quickly, probably because there was no other way to depart the area that they were at. And uh, at least for my father, he spent from the mid-1950s until the end of the 1980s flying the Lockheed Martin U-2. After those first six pilots came on board, uh, they added a, a second detachment. I believe it was called Detachment C. And this is where Geary Powers, as well as uh, several other excellent pilots, uh, joined the program. The U-2 was created, and it did everything that Skunk Works said it would do, and it performed admirably. But from the get-go, uh, it was obvious that the U-2 was being followed. The threat nations employed radars that were kind of brute force, continuous uh, wave, uh, just gobs of power looking for a return, and it was very hard to hide from such things. Now, the benefit is they weren't terribly accurate, but they knew we were there, and it wouldn't be too long before a lucky shot would take out even a U-2. May 1st, 1960, Gary Powers was flying over Russia, following a track that actually my father had flown previously. And while on that route, he was shot down and captured. He spent a year, 10 months, about that amount of time, uh, incarcerated in Russia after going through a grueling trial. In 1960, after Gary Powers was shot down, the remaining pilots in the operation was closed down, and they were sent back to the United States. And when my father returned home, I guess it was at that point that uh, he and my mother decided it was time for a second child. So if he hadn't had that opportunity, thanks to Gary Parrish Sr., I may not be here. After Gary Parrish Sr. returned from his incarceration, after crossing the Bridge of Spies being traded for Soviet spy, Mr. Abel. He returned home and also determined it was time for him to start a family, and he and his wife had their first child, which was Geary Powers Jr. 
Uh, as time has gone on, Gary Powers Jr. has and I have kept in touch. But I think one of the favorite stories I have relative to Gary Powers Jr. was sometime after his father passed away. His father passed away in a tragic helicopter accident. Long after that, there was a tearing down of the wall, and there were some events that occurred in Europe. At one of those events, they had invited my father and some others, an event where they were going to showcase some of the products of the past. In fact, I still have the model that that the Russians brought uh, to that particular event. It was what they call the Utuski, and it was actually a twin-tail version of a U-2 that they tried to develop. But at this particular event, they had a dinner. The son of the premier of Russia was present at that dinner, and he was a spitting image of his father. Young Mr. Powers was also at this event, and he bears a strong resemblance to his father as well. My father's shock and awe was looking at these two people that were reminiscent of their parents that sat on two sides of a very strong wall between our way of life and the Soviet way of life, casually talking across the table, eating dinner. The integrity of Kelly's design is near perfect. The U-2 has the optimal shape and structure for what it's meant to do, fly at high altitudes. It's been said that when new generations of engineers tried to improve upon the U-2 structure, there wasn't much more they could improve upon. But that's not to say the technology on board hasn't advanced tremendously over the years. As a small child, I sat in the U-2C cockpit quite a bit. It was almost kind of like a playpen. I guess they figured I could do no damage if they had me contained in the cockpit. But the cockpit back then uh, was very rudimentary. There was nothing computerized or automatic about it. It was all vacuum and electric-based gauges. A very difficult aircraft to fly. In fact, some would say that the best thing you can do with the throttle is don't even look at it for fear that the engine would stop running. If you look in the cockpit of the U-2 today, it is as modern as any aircraft that's just coming off the drawing board. Everything on that aircraft is updated and really state-of-the-art. The engines, the computers, the all-glass cockpit, it really is a modern-day aircraft. So there'll be times you're flying around, it's absolutely smooth, you can see forever, and there's other times you're in high-altitude turbulence, and, you, and you've got these gigantic wings. The way you would fly it is you would fly a speed while it, it would start to surf on that speed. And one of the instructors said, whatever you do, don't look back. Because you look back and you see these big, gigantic wings kind of, they're moving. This is Mark Cole. He's a former U-2 pilot and currently the Director of Requirements at the Skunk Works for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance in Unmanned Aircraft Systems. My experience flying the U-2 was when I was an Air Force pilot. I never flew anything where precision was such a critical part of day-to-day -day operations. A lot's been written about the difference between, uh, they call it the coffin corner at altitude in the U-2. And so I've been in the airplane, when you get into this high altitude turbulence, these temperature changes, and, and you transition from 
just a light stall buffet to a little bit of a buzz on the tail. They called the mock buzz. Because that gap between the stall buffet and the overspeed margin was so, so small. Part of the U2 process getting hired into the U2 was a two-week interview. And the first week is spent kind of meeting and greeting all the senior officers. And then if you pass that, you know, is this somebody we want with the squadron? Then you get three flights in the airplane. And in three flights in the airplane, you have to demonstrate that you're going to be able to successfully solo it in a short period of time. When you look at the U-2 and you see it taxi out, you know, typically followed by a car and a truck, and as it takes off, you'll see the outrigger wheels, which are called pogos, fall out. And so when you come back, the only landing gear you have is on the center line of the airplane. And, and the U-2 is a tail dragger, and, and what that means is that you land typically on both sets of wheels simultaneously or on the tail wheel first, but you have to stall the airplane to land. There's so much energy in the wing, even at low speed, that if you, if you touch down on the main gears, the airplane will bounce to like 10 or 12 feet, which can be really dangerous. And then as soon as it touches down, now you're in the world's biggest bicycle because I don't have any side gear. All I've got are gear on the center line, much like a bicycle. You might imagine on a bicycle, if you lean the bicycle one way, it wants to turn that way. If that wing starts to lower, that's where the airplane wants to go and it'll go there really fast. There are different specifications of wingspan to length ratios depending on the U-2 model. The U-2 Mark flew had a wingspan of 104 feet and a length of only 63 feet. If you had any wind at all, let's say like 10 knots of wind, you could fly the wing at a dead stop. That was always kind of the fun thing to do after a, a mission and just keep the wing flying until the guys came up and put the outrigger gear, the pogos, back in the airplane. I think most people know that you fly the U-2 in a spacesuit. What they don't realize, there's two purposes for it. One's as an emergency device if the airplane were to depressurize. And the other part is because of the altitude of the cabin, you need the 100% oxygen to breathe. And you pre-breathe for an hour before you go fly to get the nitrogen out of your bloodstream so that you don't get the bends. U-2 pilots go into altitude chambers fully suited up. This allows pilots to experience a rapid depressurization. In other words, they can experience the emergency in a controlled environment. And so you would go through the whole suit process and you would go in for this one person altitude chamber and they would run it up to 60,000 feet. And the reason was they wanted you to see that one, it protected you, what the spacesuit felt like if it did rapidly depressurize. And, and have you ever seen that little dipping duck? I don't know what you call that thing, but, but it kind of dips its nose in the water. And they have one of those in the altitude chamber. They'll ask you to function to prove that, that you can function in the spacesuit. And then they give you this rapid depressurization. It's a rapid depressurization. The spacesuit fills up and you feel like the Michelin Man. And you got to show that you can function with it fully pressurized to including, if need be, pulling the uh, ejection ring to eject. And then they tell you to look over at the little dipping duck and the water in the dipping duck is boiling. 
And, and the idea is, at that altitude, if you weren't wearing this spacesuit, that would be your blood. You know, at the time I flew the airplane, which was in the 90s, it had already been around 40-ish years, or almost 40 years. So when you were out on the U-2, you just didn't do a lot of training. You were out flying real operational missions that were collecting intelligence. There were times, man, it's just, they called it hours and hours of boredom, followed by moments of sheer terror. Uh, and there were missions where you were on 100% of the time. I spent time over Bosnia when there was active conflict in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Between 1992 and 1995, the Bosnian conflict was taking place. During the approximately two and a half years, the war resulted in the genocide of tens of thousands. And at that time, we were looking for a lot of things. We were keeping track of the artillery pieces that were being used against the civilians. And, and unfortunately looking for evidence of mass graves and, and those kinds of things. So, so you really had a sense of purpose every time you went out to fly the U-2. Hopefully the, the more people, it gives them pause before they act. And, and that's really what a lot of this is about is that is you want them to wake up and go, not today, not today. I know the U-2's watching not today. And so it's not just the U-2. There's obviously a lot of other ISR assets out there. But, but that's, what the, that's what the desire is. I spent 11 years at United Airlines. It, it was interesting from the standpoint that when I went to fly the 777, you know, I'm flying this really, really, you know, modern airplane. But I remember thinking when I first started flying the long flights in the 777, and we're going to fly to Australia. <laughs> and I realized, you know, there was a time when I would fly these flights, you know, completely by myself in the U-2. What it takes three pilots to legally fly an airliner mission, you know, one pilot in the U-2 goes out and does every day. Part of being a U-2 pilot is being in the airplane by yourself for nine hours. But for most of the time you're airborne, you're kind of on your own. And including times when you're not in radio communication with anybody or you're under some sort of silent communication. And you're making sure that the mission gets done and relying on yourself. So if you ask me, you know, where your heart is, I'd go back and pick another flight in the U-2. Different people talked about different things. It's, it's interesting. You hear about the Terminator, which is what you see on the horizon as the sun goes down. There's a flash of light. People talk about the curvature of the Earth. Uh, but for me, it's the moon. It is just being up there at night and seeing how bright the moon is. When you're at that altitude and you can see for that distance, is that during the daytime, at least, you just don't see borders. And, and I think that's probably, in some ways, you know, what the astronauts see as well, is that you see the Earth as the Earth. You don't see the geographic boundaries until nighttime. Inside Skunkworks is recorded inside the Skunkworks in Palmdale, California. 
Our next episode will be released on May 20th. Stay tuned for a sneak peek. For images of the U-2 and its pilots, visit LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunkworks. People want to solve those problems yet to be solved. People that really kind of gravitate towards Skunk Works, I think, are really trying to solve issues and problems that we don't even know we have. A product will simply evolve at a very slow rate if you're not willing to take risks.